Our Father, as we recognize that you are truly the source of every good and perfect gift, that you keep us and sustain us, that you have created us, that we might know you and someday behold your glory. We thank you that your mercies and compassions toward us never come to an end. They never cease. In fact, the Bible says that they are renewed toward us daily. Great is your faithfulness unto us, O God. We thank you that your good and perfect gifts have been embodied in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you sent him to rescue us from sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and someday, O God, even the very presence of sin in a renovated universe that reflects your power and your glory. We worship you, O Christ, Son of the living God, that you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you humbled yourself and came in our likeness and humbled yourself and went to the cross to bear our shame, to bear our guilt, that you might bring us into the presence of the living God. Father, we come today with incredible joy as a forgiven and accepted people because of Christ. We thank you that we're able to come to a throne of grace because of our great high priest, even the Lord Jesus Christ. In spirit of the living God, we invoke your name today and pray that you might come and more fully and consistently apply to our lives the blessed ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would deepen his impress upon our character, that you would lead us daily into loving, practical obedience, that you would produce his fruit and his nature in and through our lives, that you would empower our gifts and our service so that others may know through the ministry of the gospel individually as brothers and sisters in Christ as well as corporately the body of Christ at Gracie Van, that others may know that Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. Father, you've said in Psalms that your eyes are upon the righteous and your ears are open under their cry. And we cry today for Dr. Young and those who are in the Czech Republic, thanking you that you've given them safe conduct and safe travel. We ask that you would keep them in health, that you would be a shield about them from harm and danger, and that you would, through a fresh outpouring of your Spirit upon them, enable them to hold forth the word of life there, and that there might be much fruit to the praise of the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Father, as we prepare now to give our gifts unto you, you've said that we can prove you, that we can challenge you, that you would open the windows of heaven and pour out upon us a blessing that we could not contain. Might we give today joyfully and gladly. Might we invest into the kingdom of whose end there will never be, because there's a king who sits upon a throne that will never be toppled. Father, we give today, praying for the blessing of your grace upon these gifts, to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. There's an adage uh, that I think holds true for those who are substitute uh, preachers and substitute pastors on any given Lord's Day morning, and that is, blessed are the brief, for they shall be invited back. Um, I will try to keep that in mind, but I honestly, I have about a 30-minute sermon to squeeze into about 20 minutes before we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper today, which I want to have plenty of time for us to be able to linger in the Lord's presence as we participate in the bread and in the cup. John chapter 17. I was uh, providentially blessed of God to be reared in a strong Christian home. Some of my earliest memories, uh, some of the earliest memories that I recall are 
nighttime bedly, uh, nighttime bed rituals in which I was tucked in and prayed for and with. Uh, perhaps like some of you, I memorized very early the typical children's prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. But some of my early remem- uh, remembrances involved my mother and father invoking Christ's name, his will, and his blessing over my life. They set a godly example. As uh, I entered my teen years, I'm certain that hearing my mother speak to the Lord about me acted as a, somewhat of a restraint upon my fallen nature. There are many of you here today who have uh, people who pray for you on somewhat of a regular basis. Perhaps you've been blessed to have someone to pray with you just very recently. I did this morning about nine o'clock. Bob would uh, paused and prayed with me for this Lord's Day service. There may be people for whom you pray on a regular basis as well. Greater still, the Scripture teaches us that the eternal Son of God, Christ, our Lord and our Savior, prays for us. The second person of the Trinity intercedes for us. In fact, Hebrews, a book that emphasizes the supremacy of Christ over all things, says that you and I are saved to the uttermost, or you and I are saved completely, because the Son of the living God always lives to make intercession for us. Paul in Romans 8 says essentially the same thing. Well, the question then is, for whom and what does Christ pray? For whom? That is, what is the content of our Lord's prayer? What is the nature of the intercession of Christ's prayer ministry for His people? John chapter 17, in part, answers that question. And it answers it with some of the most profound Scripture found anywhere in either Testament. And we're going to look this morning at the first five verses of John 17. But Lord willing, over the next several Sundays, as I fill the pulpit for Dr. Young, we're going to look at four additional petitions that are found, prayed for and prayed about our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll begin in John 17, verse 1, and read through verse 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Prayer punctuated the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. At his baptism in Luke 3, the Bible says that he was in a place and in a posture of prayer when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him anointing him for his messianic ministry. Luke chapter 5 summarizes the prayer life of our Lord. Verse 16 in Luke 5, it says that he often withdrew into the wilderness and there he prayed. And you will find the rhythm of Christ's life and ministry interspersed with these seasons of withdrawal and seasons of prayer. Luke 6 says that he spent all night in prayer prior to calling the apostles to himself. And Luke 9 says that he went to a mountaintop to pray, and he took Peter, James, and John with him. And there he entered into such intense prayer that his appearance was 
transfigured before them. That is, His glory shone before them. He was found in prayer in Luke 11 when He gave the disciples what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. They found Him praying and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And He did. He was found in a place of prayer in Gethsemane. And such was the agony and the travail of His soul that as He prayed, His perspiration became like great drops of blood. Seven statements are recorded from the cross of Christ, and at least three of those are prayers. In fact, the last statement of Christ from the cross is that of a prayer of committal, in which he says, suspended in utter brutality, suffering in agony, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. None of those prayers, however, are the full content of them are really recorded. What is it that Christ would pray for you? What is it that Christ would pray for me? And John 17, in brief, answers that question. It is the longest and largest in terms of content recorded prayer of Christ. It is the purest, most extensive example of the verbalized communion between the Father and between the Son. And one commentator says that in this prayer... It's as if the very veil of heaven is parted and you and I are invited to enter there and to hear the prayer of Christ to God the Father. In this prayer, he lays before his Father his concerns for his people, his people then, his people now, his people in the future, indeed his people for all eternity. Their welfare is laid before the Father. Let me give you a quick outline to orient you to the passage, if I may do that this morning. There are three sections to this prayer. The section that you and I will look at in the first verses here are the section in which Christ prays for himself. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will look at the next section, verses 6 through 19, in which Christ is praying for his immediate disciples. But there are some applications that we could draw from that prayer. And then finally, we're going to look on uh, August the 28th, I believe, to the end of the chapter, verse 20, all the way down to verse 26, what Christ prays for all believers of all time. There are five petitions or five requests in this great prayer that Christ utters on the night of his betrayal, arrest, and subsequent crucifixion on the next day. Five petitions. We'll look at one today before we come to the table of the Lord. And I think it's the main request. It towers over the other requests because it is a concern for the glory of God. The request is one. Father, in verse 1, glorify your Son. And to what end? Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. Glory is One of those great biblical words found in both the Old as well as the New Testament. And it's difficult to get a grasp on its full meaning. But here's how I would summarize it in brief for us today. Glory, when it's applied to God, refers to the intrinsic weight. That's the Hebrew meaning kabod, weight, heaviness. It refers to the intrinsic weight and worth of God. So that God is more weighty and more worthy of anything at any time. It refers to the perfection of God, all that God is in His being and all that God is in His essence. The Scripture 
teaches us that God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All of these attributes and characteristics of God, His essence, that which makes Him God, is summarized in that one word, glory. Christ possessed the glory of God inwardly, eternally, before the first molecule of creation came into existence. He was in in the very nature God Himself. And God, out of His grace, out of His goodness, has revealed something of His glory to us. He's done it in creation. Perhaps you recall Psalm 19, in which David, perhaps on a starry night, lifts his eyes toward the stellar heavens and says, The heavens declare the glory of God. For many years, uh, Melinda and I, having lived in Florida, observed incredible sunsets on the Gulf of Mexico, and we beheld the glory of God. Perhaps you're an early riser, and as the sun crests the eastern horizon, you behold the glory of God. Or on a hot, muggy summer's night, on a cloudless sky, you see the stars and the hosts of the galaxies there, and you behold the glory and power and wisdom of God. God has revealed His glory in the Scripture, supremely in the Gospel. That's why it's called the glorious Gospel, because you see the character and the nature of God in the Gospel. But listen, friends, God has supremely revealed His glory in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, by His very essence and by His very nature, is God Himself. He is, as the Nicene Creed refers to Him, very God of very God. And that's how John opens this great gospel. He says that in the beginning was God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything was made by Him, and nothing apart from Him was made. That is, Christ is the fullness of the glory of God. But then John also says in chapter 1 that this Word laid aside the prerogatives that were His as God. He laid aside the outward manifestation of Almighty God, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. That is, uh, the deity, the glory of God was veiled in human likeness when Christ came. And in this text, when Christ prays, and He says, Father, glorify Your Son... He's asking for the glory of God to be magnified and to be reflected in and through His life. I think in this context, you and I this morning could very quickly and briefly see the glory of the Son in three ways. First of all, we could see the glory of the Son in the communication of the Word of God. The larger context, notice verse 1. It says that Jesus spoke these words lifted his eyes to heaven, and then said or then prayed. The larger context of this prayer, this prayer is not a standalone, free-form prayer. It just didn't come out of nowhere. There's a context for the prayer. And the larger context is all that Jesus had said in chapters 14 and 15 and 16. It's called the upper room discourse because they were in an upper room in Jerusalem. And on that evening, our Lord took the Passover and He 
applied it to something now called the Lord's Supper or Communion. But in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus gives to His disciples then and now rich, incredible instruction. Chapter 14, He promises a place that I'm going to prepare a place for you. He promises a person, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and He is going to dwell in you and abide in you forever. And He promises disciples then and now peace, my peace I leave with you. In John 15, He gives a rich image of fellowship, a rich image of union and relationship. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Because that's the only way that you're going to bear fruit for God's glory is in this relationship of abiding as a vine would abide in the branch. In chapter 16 of John's gospel, he again promises the Holy Spirit. And he says that despite all the malice of hell and all the malice of a fallen world of men, they will not be able to stop or blunt or abort the coming of the Holy Spirit. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will convince of sin. He will convince of righteousness. He will convince of judgment. That's the larger context. All these rich promises and predictions of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more immediate context is verse 33 in John chapter 16. Look at that for just a moment. Jesus says in John 16, 33... These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. New King James Version, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Our Lord promises victory in this immediate context. And all of these great far-reaching promises and predictions are anchored. They're anchored to the throne of God in this prayer. In this petition, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Glorify Him, in essence, Jesus is saying, by fulfilling every promise and every prediction that I've made to my disciples then and now. Glorify your Son by preparing that place. Glorify your Son by giving the Holy Spirit Glorify your son by giving peace in the midst of incredible opposition and adversity. Glorify your son in fulfilling all that I've promised. As Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus in this incredible miracle recorded in John 11, Lazarus had been dead four days. And Jesus, standing before this tomb, asks them to roll away the door of the tomb and then Luke, or, or John rather, in uh, the 11th chapter, I think it's verse 41, says that Jesus lifted his eyes toward heaven and he prayed and he said, Father, I thank you that you always hear me when I pray. I'm telling you today on the authority of this text that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And all that the Son has prayed in relationship to the Father will come to pass because of the one who prays and because of the one to whom he prays. Our security today in this life and our security in the life to come 
is anchored in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. You and I have the hope of heaven because of Christ. You and I have the presence of the Spirit and the peace of Christ and joy in incredible adversity because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Might that prayer be birthed into our hearts as well. Might that not be woven into the fabric of our prayer. Oh, Father, glorify your Son in my life. Glorify your Son in my home. Glorify your Son in my place of employment. For those of you who have started school this week or you start tomorrow, might the Son of the living God be glorified wherever you find yourself in a place of study. Might that not be our prayer for Grace Evangelical Church, that the Father would glorify the Son in kingdom endeavors to the praise of His great and glorious name. We see the glory of the Son in the communication of the Word that evening. But secondly, and much briefer, we see the glory of the Son in His submission to the will of God. The reality of God's will for the Son and of the Son's submission to that will is expressed in verse 1 in five words. Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. This is the seventh time in John's Gospel Jesus uses, or this phrase is used, the hour has come. It was always future, but now the hour is here. And it's a reminder that every event, every aspect of redemption is determined and governed by the will of God, acting through the Son to the glory of God alone. Salvation is not some kind of divine afterthought after plan A was botched horribly in the Garden of Eden. Later, the Apostle John would write, and I can scarcely understand this, but later in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John would write this in Revelation 13, 8. That Christ is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Even more staggering folks. He would write in John 17, 8, that names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Salvation is not an afterthought. It's not an uh-oh in the courts and councils of heaven. And when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, All that the Son came to do is embodied in those five words. All that the Son had endeavored to do, the travail of His soul is embodied in those terms. It summarizes the purpose for which Christ came. He came to win your salvation and your salvation and your salvation and the salvation of a number that is too vast to even begin to calculate. Repeatedly in the Gospel of John, Jesus had said things like this at the, to the Samaritan woman in John 4 at the well. He says to his disciples, my food, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. As he was approaching Jerusalem in John 8, he says, I always do those things that please him. On the outskirts of Jerusalem in John 12, Jesus is troubled in spirit as the shadows of Calvary lengthen over his life. In John 12, Jesus, troubled in spirit, says, What should I pray? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this very hour, I have come. 
John 12, 23 and 24, Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son. I would submit to you today that God is supremely glorified in the submission of the Son, in the saving of His people. This was the hour when the Son was to terminate the labor of His most important life by a death still more important. This was the hour when the Lord of glory was to be made sin to bear the curse and wrath of God against sin and sinners. This was the hour when events took place in human history of which there is no parallel. This is the hour when the seed of the woman, long promised in Genesis 3, would crush the head of the serpent. This is the hour when the sun would hide its gaze on Calvary. This is the hour when the earth would rock on its axis as the Son of God would purchase the salvation of His people by His willing obedience. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Christ humbled Himself even to the point of death. Our Lord would bring many sons and daughters of a fallen race to eternal and everlasting glory because of His submission to the will of God. And thus Christ pleads, Father, glorify Your Son that Your Son may also glorify you. God's appointed hour led him to God-centered, God-dependent prayer. As John Piper would say, God-entranced prayer. Not to some kind of fatalistic, apathetic resignation. I would say to you today that the sovereignty and the glory of God doesn't defeat prayer. It doesn't innervate passionate, believing prayer It is the incentive to pray. And here, the son, knowing that the hour had come, is found in a place and in a posture of prayer, pleading for the glory of God to be magnified in and through his life. There are several reasons given in this text for the request, and I'm going to have to really hurry. But they're found in verse 2, and why don't I just list them for you? The son prays, For the glory of God, that the Son may glorify the Father. And he does it basically for three reasons in this text, beginning in verse 2. First of all, the Son says, glorify me, Father, that I may glorify you as a result of your gift of authority. Verse 2, you've given him, you've given the Son, Christ, authority over all flesh. Think of the scope of this gift. All flesh takes in a lot of territory. The extent and scope of this authority extends to the rich and the poor, the sophisticated and the savage. It extends to every person who has ever lived, who is alive now, and who will ever live. All under the scope of the sovereignty of the Son. You may recall that after His resurrection, Jesus standing before His disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, says, "...all authority..." has been given to me. That means every created being, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, are subject to the Son's authority. That's what Paul said in that great text, passage of Scripture in Philippians 2. That's what Ephesians 1 says, that Christ has been given a name that's above every name. Some will willingly bow. We bend the knee now because of grace alone. We bend the knee now because the Spirit of God has subdued our stubborn, rebellious hearts and has compelled us to say Jesus Christ is Lord over our lives. 
But all will someday bow. All will someday bend the knee to the throne. All someday to the glory of God the Father alone. Say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Some may say it through clenched teeth. And some may say it shaking their fist in the face of Almighty God. But, beloved, they will say it. They will say it. Because the Father has given the Son authority. Number two, He's given the Son the gift of eternal life. You and I have life through the Son. Eternal life is more than endless life. The unconverted have endless life. They will suffer under the wrath of a holy God endlessly. Eternal life means literally the life of the age to come. It refers to the life that God has and is and gives to those who believe and receive His Son. Verse 3, Jesus defines that life as, as an intimate fellowship, an intimate knowledge and relationship with the Father. This is eternal life. He says that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We have life because the Father has given the Son. And the Son has given us life. Earlier in John 3, Jesus, it said of Jesus that he who has the Son has life. It's that simple. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It's that simple. There's a third gift in this text. And very quickly, not only the gift of authority by which the Son would glorify the Father. The capacity to give to eternal life by which in the very giving He would glorify the Father. The third thing in this text is that He's been given a people. This is a powerful, weighty text. One that eternity probably will not unfold to our understanding. But again, verse 2, that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. The Son would be glorified in the gift of a people. The Father gave the Son a people who would be redeemed and ultimately conformed to his image. To be his brothers and sisters throughout eternity. These are the ones for whom Christ prays. These are the ones for whom Christ intercedes. Verse 6, Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. Verse 9, I do not pray for the world, but those whom you've given me. Verse 11, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Verse 12, those whom you've given me I have kept. The Father is glorified in the Son because of His authority. Because He's the author and the giver of eternal life. And ultimately, God the Father will be glorified in a numberless mass of redeemed sons and daughters out of a fallen race who will reflect perfectly throughout eternity back to the Father and the Son, the glory for which Christ prays in this prayer. There's a third observation, and I quit. Not only do you see the glory of the Son in the communication of the Word of God that night, those gospel promises and predictions. You see the glory of the Son in His submission to the will of the Father. Father, the hours come. But you see the glory of the Son in the completion of the work that God had given Him to do. Verses 4 and 5. He says, Father, I have glorified Your name. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. And now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I laid it all aside. 
willingly. I laid it all aside willingly and I came like a servant. I came in the likeness of fallen men and women, sin accepted. And I did it to earn their salvation. I did it to purchase their rescue from sin's bondage. I did it to obtain eternal merit and righteousness for them. And now, Father, that I'm on the verge of it. If I could paraphrase this, it would be this. Sustain me through the night. Sustain me to Calvary's cross. Sustain me through the passion. Bring me out of the grave and restore to me that glory and fellowship that I had with you before the world began. Did the Father answer that prayer? Stephen said he did. He saw him as he was being martyred in Acts 7. He beheld his glory. Paul at his conversion in Acts 9 would say that God answered that prayer. He beheld him in his glory. And the effulgence of that glory was so great that he was blinded for three days. John would say that he did on the Isle of Patmos for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1, he saw him and his countenance was brighter than the noonday sun and his eyes like flaming pools of fire. And John fell before him as though he were dead. Oh, beloved of God, this is what we've been made for. This is what we've been saved for, not to serve ourselves, but to serve the risen and reigning Christ. And someday we will behold His glory. And someday we will share in that glory. And someday we will reflect that glory. All to the glory of the Father to whom He prays. Amen and amen. Father. Might you work that into our hearts today, even as we participate and partake in these simple elements of the Lord's Supper. Grant it, O God, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.